Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There was this woman, Alicia Day. She was so gorgeous that she was compared to the wild red roses that grew by the river. One day, a stranger comes to town, and he is enchanted. Love at first sight. So he goes to her house, introduces himself, and takes her in his arms and kisses her red lips. The second day, he comes back and gives her a red rose. And really piling on the charm, he tells her that she is the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. He asks her to meet him by the river where the red roses grew. On the third day, they're by the river. The scenery is pretty. And as soon as her back is turned, he walks up behind her and repeatedly bashes her head in with a rock. As he kills her, he says, All beauty must die. Once he's done, he puts a rose between her teeth and pulls her in the river. Now people call her the wild rose. Some have seen her ghost wandering by the river, her head bashed and bloody, carrying a single red rose. Have you heard the story of- and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This is her telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello, and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. Welcome back to the show, everyone. This is our second year. Our second year? Ugh, makes me feel so old. I feel like we just started this as a crazy project on our back porch, like yesterday. (laughs) Wasn't that long ago, but... We do want to thank you all for coming back. We appreciate all of our listeners. We've had some really great listener involvement recently. We have been talking to all of y'all on Twitter. We've been hearing from you on the website. And we are just so, so lucky to have listeners like you. I feel like PBS every time I say it. Well, you can definitely check us out on our website. Like you said, justastorypod.com. That'll have all a lot of the references for the show along with other interesting information. And also my original art for every episode ever. So is up. I do a weekly illustration and they are all there for you to behold and enjoy. And also on that site, we'll have links over to our Twitter at just story pod, which is something we tweet things out about the show every day of that week. The show is released. We also on our website, will have links to our pause, go read it store and our new merchandise. That's right. I've also been a busy bee creating a cool graphic for our t-shirt. It's not just our logo. We're doing something a little bit different. And speaking of PBS. Yes. We now have a Patreon page. Are we going to do a pledge drive? No, we won't be that annoying. We'll just remind you that we have a Patreon that you can go to if you want to help support the show. And you get lots of fun perks right now. You, We have 
stickers with Sam's new design on it, as well as some monthly mini episodes. Minisodes? Something like that. Minicast? We still haven't decided. And also, speaking of our listeners, we had one of our listeners record the story for today's episode. And if you want to share some of the urban legends or myths that you grew up with, you can call the Urban Legend Hotline. And that number is 512-222-3375. Call now. And leave a voicemail. And we do want to remind everybody about our Pause Go Read It prize. This is to celebrate our one-year anniversary. And if you reach out to us on Twitter through email telling us about your favorite urban legend, leave us a rating or review on iTunes, then you'll be entered to win a Pause Go Read It prize from our Pause Go Read It store. So back to the story at hand. Today we have... A whopper. A whopper. (laughs) Today we have the ancient, medieval legend of Eliza Day. Oh, yes. No, I've heard there are reports all across Europe that, you know, there are locations where people claim that she's from and that her ghost is seen on the banks of rivers and ponds and things everywhere with red roses and she's just a glorious ghost that people just can't stop talking about, except... That's just a story. That is just a story. It is a story about a story. It is a meta legend. (laughs) This is a meta legend, and I'm kind of excited about this. I feel like this is the first story we've ever truly on our own, (laughs) completely and totally busted. Yeah. No. So no, Eliza Day is not an ancient legend. And So all around the internet, if you Google, like, Eliza Day, you get this stock blurb it's like very much boilerplate copy paste copy pasta it it is a copy pasta and from my research and please if anyone knows an ancient origin of this let me know i will so eat my hat that i'm perfectly fine with that this all stems from a list verse article I love Listverse. I love Listverse, too. It is a great, great, great website. Highly recommended. But they published an article called 10 Creepy Urban Legends from Around the World on June 12th of 2013. And this was by Theodorus II. And lists all these great urban legends, things you would know about, like Slipmouthed Woman... The Scottish girl that knocks on the door. I can't remember. The White Death. Yeah. All these great things. And all of the other stories have these nice little citations on them. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, mm-hmm. this one doesn't. Huh. And, and it reads, In medieval Europe, there apparently lived a young woman named Eliza Day, whose beauty was like that of the wild roses that grew down the river, all bloody and red. Uh-huh. One day, a young band came into town and instantly fell in love with Eliza. They dated for three days. On the first day, he visited her at her house. On the second, he brought her a single red rose and asked mm-hmm. her to meet him where the wild roses grow. Mm-hmm. It's very poetic. On the third day, he took her down to the river where he killed her. What? The horrible man supposedly waited till her back was turned, then took a rock in his fist, whispering, All beauty must die. And with one swift blow, he killed her instantly. He placed a rose between her teeth and slid her body into the river. Some people claim to have seen her ghost wandering the riverside, blood running down the side of her head, and a single rose in her hand. Not her teeth? 
I guess it's different places. All right, all right. We're staging. <laughs> but this is literally almost boilerplate in about 50 articles on the internet about urban legends. The thing is, the there's thing no is. mention of Eliza Day in any article predating this article. There are no mentions in any of the literary searches we've done. There are no mentions in any Google books, in any books from the time or current about Ballads. Uh, Irish folklore. And so one place I looked was I went through a bunch of old ballads because it sounds like a ballad. sounds like a song. And uh, so I pulled up my folky folklore old books and went through and looked. And there is no variation of her name. Not spelled with a... It's spelled with an S in the article. But, Sometimes online it is spelled with a Z. So I was like, let's try Z. Let's try with an A. Let's try... No. No. Couldn't find it. Doesn't exist. It is a well-kept secret if it is a legend. We even found... A news story about it by a PhD historian, and we contacted her to cite her source, and she cited guess. list first. List versus her source. Sending um, sending me a nice link to it, <laughs> and so being the intrepid reporters that we are, that's right. We put on our pork pie hats. We did, and we contacted our favorite medieval scholars we did i am a huge fan of the medievalists we cited them on our night marchers episode their website is gorgeous and their content is well curated and well written and well researched so we reached out to them and it yeah turns out no yes they asked a few people and there is no reference to any sort of medieval legend about eliza day so this is a legend circa 2013 But a few of these articles, a few do cite that this legend did inspire a modern day troubadour. Oh, really? You don't say. How was he inspired by a legend that doesn't exist? One one wants to ask themselves, but one won't. Oh, but that is what I've been doing for the past week. (laughs) And that would be the Australian troubadour, Nick Cave. Cave, which I want to say Nick Cage every time I try to say it. So correct me every Not time. Nicholas Cage. I know. And correct no. me every time, please. So- I could see him playing this part <laughs> in a short film when he's down on his money. And which he is has, all the time. <laughs> he has sold his last number one Superman comic. Yeah. Yeah. Poor Nick Cage. In 1996, Nick Cave released an album called Murder Ballads. Which is a thing. Which we'll get to. This was a wildly popular album, and he had a duet on this album with the other huge Australian pop star, Kylie Minogue. Right, and they sang this very dark, very creepy, very traditional-sounding ballad called Where the Wild Roses Grow about a young woman named Eliza Day who courts a man for three days, and on the third day, he kills her. Right, and if you uh, rewind the podcast, that's right, this is on cassette. Or just go to the list first article, which we will have a link on our website because it's our primary source. <laughs> there are several quotations in the article that are exact lyrics from the song, including all bloody and red to meet her where the wild roses grow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That He brings her a single red rose mm-hmm. down to the river and the famous infamous line, all beauty must die. Yeah, can we talk about that for a second? Let's talk about my head explode I had a bit over all beauty must die. Right, it's a very famous line in a way from one of your favorite poets. Hey, so I love John Keats. I love John Keats with all of my little heart. 
He gets all the parts that are not from Mark Twain and William Faulkner. He has a poem that says, She dwelt among beauty, and all beauty must die. But if you know anything about Keats, you know that he is dying at the time that he writes this, and he's writing about melancholy and about how things in life can be preserved in their beauty by leaving them as wished for instead of actually realized. And it's this very weird sort of romanticization of death. He writes things like Ode to Melancholy, which is about how great it is to be bummed out and dying. That sounds upbeat. It's, yeah, it's a real toe tapper. But Keats is coming at All Beauty Must Die through a lens that is dying through a lens. He's literally dying. I think consumption. Everybody died of consumption. I'm going to say it's consumption. He knows he is dying. He's watching himself waste away. And even the things that he enjoys most in life are tainted with death. And so even if there is something beautiful, you know, that doesn't save it. That doesn't make it safe. It's about a lack of permanence, not a wish to kill pretty things. Right. It's like Nick Cave in his album Murder Ballads, which is an excellent album. He's taking those ideas of these old ballads and these romantic ideas and kind of turning them on their head and almost making fun of them, parodying them. He, instead of taking this as like this philosophical idea, he's like, oh, well, it says all beauty must die. I'm going to take that as a directive. Kill the pretty things. All right, this is macabre parody it is and it's a it's a smart parody i'm not saying like he misunderstood keats i'm saying like he subverted it oh no he he gets it <laughs> he gets it but he, he gets those other ideas that romantics are so fond of talking about you know in this poem takes this beautiful innocent young woman and she is so virtuous and pure and like besides the fact that he calls her like a wild rose and the song is really great because it's these like alternating verses of nick cave singing like the murderer murderer the lover and our pure innocent rose singing with kylie minogue singing it has this haunting quality of just the back and forth of her just complete innocence and naivete mm-hmm. and his cruel thinking and very self-serving thinking. And, you know, she even says that, you know, he would be my first man. Oh, well, how sweet. You know, he's just pointing out how innocent she was and, t- and tying her in with the flowers. Right. And flowers are beautiful, but a lot of women I know hate to get flowers. I love to get flowers, but people are like, oh, they don't last that long. So there is like a very temporary nature to their beauty and a very temporary job that they have to do, which is sit in your house and look pretty. Right. There's that fragility to it, that mm-hmm. non-permanence, fleeting beauty. And he definitely wrote this with his duet partner, Kylie Minogue, in mind because he had been obsessed with her for a long time. Right. And it- to put it in perspective, if you're not familiar with Australian music, Nick Cave is very much like the indie guy, right? Like, he's not a huge pop star. Well, he's, no, you know, he's like the indie pop star. He's okay. like the king of weird So, like indie. a Ben Gibbard character. Right. Or, okay, so something like that, where he's well-known but not mainstream. And if you found out that Ben Gibbard was obsessed with Britney Spears and wanted to write a duet with her, it's kind of like that. I mean, in a way, sure. Like I said, he'd been wanting to work with her for years. There'd been this urban legend. Again? Another one. Another one? Legend and a legend. Around 1990, so several years before this, that, you know, a friend of a friend found herself sharing a group house with Nick Cave in London. 
mm-hmm. and she poked her head into his attic bedroom and found it covered with Kylie posters and paraphernalia. And he just had this crazy obsession. I'm sure he had like little hair dolls of her or something. Fanboyed out. Out. But he readily admits that he has this odd professional. He's very like careful with his words, like obsession with her. And he says, even though it's a murder ballad, I'm dealing with a kind of obsession I had with her on a professional level, but an obsession, which is about her beauty and her innocence in a way. Yeah, that is very carefully worded. Good job there. And the video to this song is so interesting because it very much uses the imagery of Ophelia's death, the famous painting by John Millet. Right. That is a very well-known, iconic image of Ophelia floating delicately atop the water like a lily. It is one of the most idealized images of death that perhaps exist in the world. It is a gorgeous painting of a corpse. It's hyper-realistic, meaning every little detail in the painting, no matter focus, is completely realized. Mm -hmm. And so Ophelia floats daintily atop the water, surrounded by beautiful flowers, looking like a beautiful angel. And similarly, Kylie Minogue floats atop the water, surrounded by beautiful flowers, looking like an angel in the video. Right, and you have Nick Cave playing the killer, and he's narrating his version of the events leading up to the murder, while Eliza, Kylie's character, is lying dead, Mm -hmm. floating in the water, telling her side of the story. So her ghost is telling her side of the story in a way. Right, and that that's a common theme in old Celtic ballads. You will see a supernatural return of the female victim. But normally, they have a little bit more agency than Eliza's character. Yeah, and you know that argument's been made that in having her ghost tell her side of the story, that it does give her some agency. I'm going to debunk that. <laughs> it's like, well, I can see where they're coming from. I can see where I'm coming from, and I, like... <laughs> you, I bet you can. Please, uh, enlighten us all. No, I, uh, I have such a problem with that, because, like, women have only had voices after their deaths for so long. Like, they've only become important characters after they were martyred, or after, you know, they gave themselves up for their husband and he went on to be king, or... It is the martyred woman that receives a voice and accolades throughout history, and... If you examine the lyrics of Where the Wild Roses Go, and we'll link to that on the site, you know, she says, they call me the Wild Rose. Why they call me that, I don't know. Right, that is the start of the song. And so it's like, you were killed because this guy thought you were pretty, and you gained no life experience. You did die an innocent. You did fulfill his fantasy of removing the possibility for corruption before it happened. It is a continuation of the male fantasy of annihilating corruption in women, that she's acting out. She is not telling you, I regret this. I made choices. It was worth it. Anything. She's not saying anything. She's not commenting on why things happened to her. She's like, I don't know what happened. And yeah, like, she, she kind of retains her innocence. Yeah. And so because he wants to kill her, because she's innocent and perfect, it's just a continuation of that fantasy. I don't believe it gives her any agency. She's just telling him what he wants to hear. This could be his imagination. This may not even be her voice. It may be what he imagines the girl would say if she could still speak. And as long as we're debunking, I'm going to go ahead and say that this could not possibly be a medieval ballad. Why is that? Oh, it has too many modern, and I'm air quoting, themes. It has a lot of uh, Victorian romantic themes. 
also it directly references Keats, who had not been alive or written words during the medieval era. The sentiment of all beauty must die is such a romantic, Byronesque, super placed in time motif. And it just didn't exist then. There was enough murder and mayhem going on that people were not recreationally murdering pretty things. Well, I mean, when did that come about? Uh, well, it definitely did come about. And that was sort of a... I mean, like, Jack the Ripper was sort of the inception of that idea of motiveless murder. And the idea of unmarried men killing unmarried women really did not gain any cultural footing. I'm sure there were isolated incidents. I'm sure there were. Oh, of course. Of course there were. But it was not something reflected in, like, the cultural concerns of the time. Like, it was not something being addressed as an epidemic or anything like that until, like, the 1800s. So it's very far removed from the medieval time period. Right, and the, all the time frame that you're talking about references what the album is called. Murder Ballads. Murder Ballads. I love Murder Ballads. So, to back up just a smidge. A smidgen? A smidge. A skosh. Let's talk about the idea of ballads. Ah, ballads. Okay, so traditionally, ballads were sung in order to tell stories and kind of keep the details straight. It's like easier to memorize a song than it is to memorize prose. And so literary ballads are things like Beowulf. I've heard of it. And there was a big effort around the 1800s to collect and catalog these kinds of ballads. And one of the fathers of American folklore, Child, was a, an English professor at Harvard. And his big agenda and purpose in life was to collect as many Irish, English, and Scottish ballads as he could possibly get his hands on. And he had a very careful system for cataloging them where he would try to make sure that they retained group authorship, community authorship. And he would sort of piece together bits and fragments from different collections. And these standard forms, which he tried to trace back and make sure were the most original, true-to-form, oldest versions that he could possibly cobble together, are called the child variants or the child ballads. And um, <laughs> Not a children's ballad. And it's like considered the most standard form. So as long as there's been a study of folklore, ballads have been a part of it. Right, but there's a big difference between a literary ballad mm-hmm. and a popular ballad. Absolutely there is. Yeah, and so popular ballad defined by G. Malcolm Laws. Yeah, he's another big dude. He's He is the American ballad dude. And he describes it as a narrative song, usually anonymous, which depends upon oral tradition for its preservation. The ballad must tell a story, not be a primary lyrical expression of emotion, involve human beings in which the audience can take a personal interest. Now, these kind of popular ballads really hit their stride in the 1800s, where it's something called a broadsheet. A broadside. A broad, like a broadsheet. A bro- broadside. Broadsheet. So a broadsheet was a single sheet of paper printed on one side and usually had like a ballad or a rhyme or news, etc. on it. It was very common in Britain, Ireland, and then spread to North America. During the 16th to 19th century, they were produced in huge numbers. In the 1660s, over 400,000 were sold in England. That's impressive. I didn't know that many people in England could read in the 1660s. Right? I don't know. I found that really interesting, too. And like you were talking about traditional ballads, sometimes they would originally have those. But as they started to gain popularity, you started to have original ballads being produced. And these would be about 
what was going on. So they were kind of tabloidy? <laughs> Very much so. Oh, tabloids are still a thing in England. And like you said, sometimes they are called broadside ballads. Yes, they are. And among the topics of broadside ballads were love, religion, drinking songs, legends, early journalism, which included disasters, political events, and signs, wonders, and prodigies. Generally, broadside ballads included only the lyrics, often with a name of a known tune that would fit suggested below the title. Right, so it'd be like, oh, you know this melody. Sing this song to this melody. So like, hey, you know what would be a great way to remember the ABCs? (laughs) We should sing them in order to the tune of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Did you not know that? I did not know that. Did I just ruin your life? just blew my mind. My four-year-old brain never processed that. (laughs) But, you know, these were the early conception of kind of a newspaper or a tabloid. And the immortal Tom Waits even says, These were the oral tabloids of the day. News just happened to be a meal best served hot. What is he building in there? What is he building in there? Oh, Tom Waits. And he's talking about the ballads being sung from the sheets, of course. Mm-hmm. And these eventually did die down in popularity as newspapers came into print. So we have differentiated between a literary ballad and a popular ballad. And now we're going to talk about something known as a Native American ballad, which, again, I'm going to clarify, just as a child's ballad is not a ballad for children, a Native American ballad is not a song about Native Americans. <laughs> It is a ballad that comes from America originally. And in these ballads, the subjects that might be approached are things like heroes. So like a song about George Washington? Yeah, kind of. Maybe. Probably. But like the things I think of are sort of these fictionalized heroes like John Henry. It's like folk heroes. Yes. Yes. More that. They kind of work to celebrate the more unsung, no pun intended, heroes of the country. You know, the working man, people who do one heroic act. Like, there was a train conductor that saved a Vanderbilt girl, and he had ballads about him. But, like, John Henry was an incredibly important one because it highlighted the African-American contribution to westward expansion. Kind of this need for these people to carve out a place in society for themselves. It's literally carving out a place. (laughs) In society during westward expansion. It's very literal. It is very literal. But another topic of discussion in these songs are the outlaws or the antiheroes. It's like Willie Nelson. Basically, yes. Songs about Willie Nelson. That's all we're going to talk about for the rest of the episode. No, I mean, yes, Willie Nelson does now have ballads written about him. That's true. That's true. But in the beginning, he didn't exist yet. Not by the same name, at least. I think he's an immortal spirit that just changes his name every few years, like every hundred years or so. But they were about people like Jesse James and his gang. And they were kind of given like a Robin Hood quality where people were more likely to empathize with them. Right. You're like vigilante, righteous gunslinger, morally justified equalizer. Oh, is that the title? Is that what it says on your your business card? That's what it says under our new business, which you can hire called Puns for Hire. You've been trying to sell me on that for years. I still don't think it's that funny. (laughs) I like pun intentional. There are many other types of folk music, too, and a lot of them do include ballads, because a ballad's any song that tells a story, really. Basic definition. And those can be anything from, like, lullabies to dance songs, working songs, which are, like, anything you use to keep a rhythm, like chain gang songs fall in this category, or dirges, hollers, which I'm fond of a genre of music being called a holler. A holler? Yep. 
joke songs, which are great. If you look at some of the old ones, they're usually ironic and like have a lot of wordplay and hyperbole. Murder ballads are a very interesting subgenre of ballad. Right, murder ballad. This part of the ballad class is still around today and is so intricately woven into our idea of like Western country folk music. Absolutely. And while a ballad is a song that tells a story, a murder ballad tells a story about a murder. Obvious definition. And these stories can include details such as innocence, guilt, motive, method, justice, or remorse. And so obviously this Nick Cave song on the album Murder Ballads is a murder ballad. But murder ballads have been just so important in these certain folk groups especially in appalachia in the south and in the south and out west with the cowboys and such oh of course expanded that way but we talked about how these types of popular ballads really originated in england and ireland and came over and the murder ballad is the same way there's some great old ballads that are still sung today that are from the 1800s that originated in England. And an early one was about William Ware. He was a high-stakes society gambler, and he was shot and stabbed by John Thurtle and his two accomplices in Radless, England in 1823. The murderer was captured, tried, and sentenced to death. You gotta love that quick turnaround. And the broadsheets just came out about it. It's this great, salacious story. And one of the lines in the ballads says, Although his hands were warm with blood, he down to supper sat and passed the time in merry mood with drink and song and chat. He like was a cold-blooded asshole who didn't even give a shit that he was still bloody. He was hungry. Yeah. Just how cold and removed he was. What a terrible person to just kill this man. And this was covered in such a way that it became, it cited a lot as the beginning of like the fascination with English murder, like people like De Quincey and, you know, a lot of people who wrote about the way murder was being covered and the way people were fascinated with murder will cite this as like the inciting incident. Right. For Hertfordshire tragedy. And another one that was wildly popular at the time was the Five Pirates of the Flowery Land. That sounds like a children's show. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> sounds like Candle Cove. It's, I know. It sounds like super upbeat. And then like a skeleton comes out and tries to eat your soul. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these broadsides were sold at public executions. What better venue? I mean, you know your audience. Congratulations to your marketing team. You have done it. Right. You know whoever's there wants to know about this terrible murderer that is being hanged. Excuse me, sir. Why do we hate him? Excuse me. Excuse me, sir. Can you please tell me why we hate this man? Do you have a lively tune to tell me about it? So I sing it to the tune of Twinkle Twinkle. Perfect. I'm familiar. And so this broadside, broadsheet, sold 3,000 copies in one hour. Holy cow. After the execution in 1864 of five sailors for the willful murder of George Myth upon the high seas. So these are distinctly not American murder ballads that you've been telling me about. And I want to talk about American, American murder ballads because you know they're going to be better. Fine. We have guns. <laughs> they had guns then too. Don't worry. And so as we stated, these really took a huge foothold in the Appalachian Mountains. A lot of people of Scottish and Irish descent settled that area. 
and they kind of lived in cultural isolation. With that being said, they preserved a lot of the old traditions that came along with them. And some of that being a reliance on violence as an acceptable means of resolving problems. You know, they were isolated from these more modern, enlightened ideas. They were also isolated from things like literacy. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. But that would mean that there's a very strong oral tradition there. Exactly. And so these ballads, sung and passed down among family members and communities, became a form of kind of oral tradition. And the great and wonderful Alan Lomax, Uh, who is a kind of a leader of the ethnomusicologist folklorists back in the day that just traveled around the country with his recorder, talking to every person that would talk to him and recording songs and later recording video through all sorts of different communities. In 1960, he did release a book called Folk Songs of North America, that talked a lot about this. He says, Willful and cold-blooded murders came naturally to people whose ancestors were moonshiners and feudists. The old Scottish border ballad tradition, which linked love and death, fitted the code of the backwoods. I want to say he's oversimplifying. I want to. You want to. But he's not. I mean, everything's an oversimplification. You can always dig into things. Every one of our episodes could be 5,000 hours long. They are. (laughs) Sometimes it seems that way. (laughs) Yeah, I want to say it's an oversimplification. But then I think about the other day when I was talking to my dad. We were talking about his people. And I asked him about his grandfather, Paul, and what he was like. And he said, well, he had that big scar. That's really what I remember about him. What big scar? Well, across his throat, he had a giant... Um, what, his, what? Across his throat, Okay. he had a big scar where a man had tried to slit his throat when they were fighting over a woman. So, was there a murder ballot about this? There could have been, because it's Ippolite's revenge, we <laughs> shall call it. I feel like we should, we are duty-bound. Yeah, somebody write me a murder ballot. But no, he lived, he was fine. He had his throat slit and made it. I'm not I'm not certain that he is. And they lived in a place that was called Robber's Lane, you know, reformed into Robeline now. They lived just outside of there. And it was called Robber's Lane because it was the territory between Louisiana and Texas. It was a no man's land. And so it's where all the outlaws would go and hide out. And yeah, it was kind of rough and tumble and people pulled knives and fought and things. So... Alan Lomax just might be on to something. <laughs> might be on to something there. And so, you know, with that said, there are lots of topics that something like a murder ballad can talk about. Oh, and it does. And they do. They talk about all of them. And so just for a few, for example, and for fun stories. Because we love fun stories. You do have that man versus man. Right. Which I told the fun story. I did. One example of that that Lomax gives is Wild Bill Jones. In this song, it's he about... He doesn't talk about my grandfather? <laughs> told you, we need to write it. Okay. <laughs> he talks about a fight between two mountain bravos. And the singer tells of shooting young Jones simply for walking and talking with his Lula girl. So is this shooting a man in Reno just to watch him die? Basically. Okay. And there's another great classical ballad that is a man versus man. And it's called Stagger Lee. 
That's an old one. It's a very old one. And it, there are some amazing recordings. My favorite being probably Lead Belly's recording. Mm-hmm. And we have created a Spotify playlist, by the way. We'll link to it on the website. It'll be on there. So you can go listen to some of the murder bouts we talk about on the show. And then also other ones that we think are just awesome. And including some modern things we think fit in in this genre. It's kind of where it's evolved into. But anyway, back to Staggerly. This was important because this was a very popular murder ballad among African Americans. And it starts with a real character. Mm-hmm. It's based on a real guy, Stag Lee Shelton. And he was kind of a gang leader, small time pimp in St. Louis's red light district. Who are you calling small time? Hey, I, I wouldn't tell it to his face, okay? And he got in an argument with Billy Lyons. Billy Lyons had the audacity to reach over and snatch Stag Lee's Stetson. You don't do that shit. Off of his head. Mm-mm. Sagley looks at him and says, you better give me back my hat or I'm going to shoot you. Okay, so he to, gave... No. What happened? Well, Sagley pistol whips him. <laughs> Does he give the hat back? No. And then he shoots him. Well, he told him he would. As the man is lying there bleeding out, Sagley reaches over and grabs his hat and says, I told you to give me my hat. <laughs> Justifiable homicide. All I can think about is that children's book. I want what? <laughs> what? What are you reading to the kids when I'm not around? That book, I Want My Hat Back. Stagly? Yes, it's a book called I Want My Hat Back. And it's about a bear. Who oh, loses- he eats him at the yes, end. Yes, he, oh, loses- he loses his hat and he goes around asking all the animals if they've seen his hat. And he realizes the rabbit has his hat. And he goes and he eats the rabbit. And somebody comes and asks where the rabbit is. And he's like, I don't know. Why would you ask me that? I have no idea. It's hilarious. But it is actually the story of Stag Lee told with animals for children. <laughs> Well, in the song, so that's what actually like really happened and is what is reported. Mm-hmm. In the song, Stagley says to Billy, I can't let you go with that. You done more than my money. You can't have my Stetson hat. Because that rhymes better. And another fun topic that these ballads take on, and I'm going to let you talk about this. Oh, this is the wronged woman. Mm-hmm. Hell hath no fury. So the revengeful woman is embodied in the classic song. Frankie and Albert, or Frankie and Johnny, depending on the recording. And it's based on an incident that occurred in St. Louis or Kansas City, Missouri, in the 1890s. And it's about a woman who is betrayed and seeks retribution. So she finds her man slipping around out on the town. And she shoots him several times with a, quote, big 44. Yeah, she walks in the bar with her big 44. So as Johnny or Albert is writhing in pain after being shot by Frankie, the song tells us that he says, roll me over on my left side, roll me over slow, roll me over on my left side, Frankie, them bullets hurt me so. I was your man, but I was doing you wrong. And really, that's all she wanted. That's all she wanted. She let off a little steam too. (laughs) Yeah. Then Frankie says to the judge in the song, I'm sorry this thing has come to pass. I never shot him in the first degree. I shot him in his trifling ass. Cause he done me wrong. Cause he done me wrong. Can I just say I love the word trifling? And I did not know it was such an old word. And it's in the Johnny Cash murder ballad as well. Uh, Delia's Gone. Yeah. That which is an old, old mm. song. Also based on a real case. Yeah, which is also not Johnny Cash. It's an American recording. So mm-hmm. it's recordings of old traditional songs. Johnny Cash did write his share of murder ballads. And this leads us to the best type of murder ballad. 
I think so. And what we've been talking about with Nick Cave's song, and that is the Sweetheart Murder Ballad. Or the Murdered Sweetheart Ballad. Or the Murder Girl Ballad. I'm pretty sure you can get a t-shirt for the band Murder Girl Ballad at Hot Topic near you. Oh, I totally thought they were an alt-country band. Like, I was really, like... Oh, they could be. Yeah, I think that's better. It's a girl band, obviously. So, yes, the Sweetheart Murder Ballad is my favorite because it is so rife with misogynistic overtones. And it is just an incredible example of all of the cultural brainwashing that goes into making people think violence against women is okay, but it does it to a catchy tune and with a really cool hook. Hold your feminist horses. We'll get there. My horses are feminist. Hold them. Grab the reins. They won't let me. You can't tie me down. That's what they say. You can't keep me in this domestic role. I say, whoa, girl. And they say, well, that's very paternalistic. But sweetheart murder ballads combine all of the best parts of ballads. You have your heroes. Mm-hmm. Or your anti-heroes. Mostly. Let's go with that. Then you also have your love songs and your courting songs. Mm-hmm. And your kind of parable songs. Mm-hmm. No, it's all of that rolled into one big bloody mess. To a catchy tune. And... For one example, I give you the story of Tom Dula. Okay. Now, Tom Dula was a Civil War soldier. This is a real story. It's true? Yes. Okay. And he returned home to Wilkes County in North Carolina to find that his sweetheart, who I'm sure he'd been writing poetic love letters to throughout the Civil War. My dear sweetheart. And he found that she was betrothed to another man. So this is very reminiscent of the Elmore writer. It is, you're right. Classic motifs for folk tradition, just saying. And so he decides to take up with her cousin. No! And he, um... Oh, does, does, does he ruin her? Yes, he does. Okay. And so she gets pregnant. The cousin? Yes. Okay, so she's a ruined woman. And they decide to elope. Oh, huh, that's kind of him. But on the night of May 27th, 1866, Laura left, Laura being the cousin, to meet Dula and never returned. Hmm. Her body was found three months later, mutilated with multiple stab wounds. So she tripped. She fell on her sword. She fell on her sword nine Nine times. times. And Dula fled to Tennessee, but was eventually tracked down and captured and hung for his crimes. Hanged. In 1868. And so you can see just this has so many elements of... Of popular stories we have today. You've got sex. Drugs. No. Rock and roll. Stop. Oh, wait. Let me... No. Time machine back. Okay. Uh, We've got sex, uh, punishment. Murder. Murder. Unrequited love. Jilted lovers. Spurned lovers. Yeah. Lots of things we still see. So this became the song Tom Dooley, and it was a popular ballad that passed around for a long time in folk circles Mm -hmm. but it was recorded by the kingston trio in 1958 and was a smash hit and it's kind of started the fad of murder ballads kind of in pop culture but really it just started the fad of folk tradition the folk boom okay so this is when like swamp pop has its moment and like uh, well swamp pop kind of took off from that Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, this is that that it makes me think of Inside Leland Davis. Yeah, so this is the the village scene. Then this is like right, all the cool kids listen to folk music. 
kind of like it was a few years ago. Or now. It's fading. It's fading. But the sweetheart murder ballad. Oh, oh, what a what a subgenre of a terrible thing this is. There are very common themes that run through this subgenre. And they are the ruined woman. Ah, the knocked up lady. She's ruined. She might have just had sex. She might not no. even be pregnant. She might have just sacrificed her virtue. So she has sex and then... She dies. Like in Mean Girls. <laughs> a man who does not want to have a union lasting longer than 15 minutes with this woman. You're being generous. <laughs> uh, yes. He can want it to last 15 minutes. It doesn't mean it will. There is usually some water around for to display the bodies of the murder victims. And they're usually told in a first person point of view from the killer's point of view. Right. It usually is from the killer's point of view. I find that so interesting. And a lot of times he tells of his crime. And then there's also this kind of remorseful confession part to it. Right, and there, along with the confession, there's also a warning. And oh, usually, definitely. the warning is issued to women, which is crazy to me, because it's like, it's very it's victim blaming. It's OG victim blaming. <laughs> I mean, it's like we always talk about, and other urban legends, like, one that comes to mind is, like, the hook. Yeah. You know, it's like, you go and you have sex, and someone will kill you. Don't do that. Yeah, but these, these this happened a lot. <laughs> You're right. A lot of these murder ballads are based on real stories. So maybe that's the origin of this tradition in America. But sometimes the song starts that way with that warning, and sometimes it is at the end. Sometimes it's like, come and listen to the story so you don't get killed. It's like, come all ye maidens who might be wanting to canoodle with men who you're not married to and sit at my feet and listen to me tell you why you shouldn't do the thing you want to do. I think that's an actual quote. Yeah, no, that's the start of Emmy Wise. No kidding. But Omi Wise is one of the oldest murder ballads that's been around. We'll also have that on the playlist for you to listen to. It has that classic idea that the killer is punished. Right. But it's based on a true story of Naomi Wise, who was murdered after she fell pregnant, as they say. And she was a ruined woman and her lover killed her. And he was never tried for his crimes in reality. But in the song, his name is named, and he it says that he goes to jail. And so it was kind of like being convicted in the court of public opinion before it was cool, which is an interesting feature and function of murder ballads. It serves as communal condemnation when the justice system won't step up and do its part. All right, sometimes the killer does elude punishment, um, such as like in Pretty Polly. But you do have and this is more in the old traditions like in england and ireland can we talk about that supernatural element that can be something like the devil made me do it which happens like people do say the devil came and told them to do things all the time it happens <laughs> well i mean it happens the devil tells me to do stuff all the time oh okay like when i forget to set the coffee pot that is the devil's work <laughs> but a lot of times it is that vengeful female spirit coming back to exact revenge, right? And that has a lot of roots in like Celtic mythology and kind of the pagan tradition. And it didn't quite make it across the pond. Puritans. Stupid Puritans. Ruining everything. That's literally their mission statement. To ruin all the fun. No Halloween. <laughs> no sex. Do not make the sign of the cross at a baptism. All the fun. And there's a murky motive. Usually it's like a fear of loss of status is the most clear-cut thing you can see. Like a lot of times a couple is mixed class, cross-class. 
And so the woman's usually of a lower social status and would have been a shameful match for the young man. Oh, no. But it can be other things. It can be like jealousy. If you find out your sweetheart has been canoodling with another man while you're off at war writing her spontaneous love poetry. Or it can be rejection. Uh, some of the songs cite like when she said she wouldn't marry me, I killed her. But a lot of times in these songs, they are these warning songs. Like, woman, don't you go doing that or you're going to get killed. And so there isn't even a really well-defined motive. And there's been a lot of kind of writing on that idea. To go back to Nick Cave, he talks about that there's this like murderous male attention and a nefarious transferred erotic desire. I think that that is even more modern than we're talking about. Like, I think that that is like a justification for Ed Kemper murders. I think that that's Ted Bundy. I don't think that that is these men. So you think it's not necessarily erotic desire. It's more of the idea of like transgression, the man and being able to take control. It's when you're threatened. These women indirectly, generally threaten these men in some way, either you know, loss of status, tying them down, uh, rejecting them, betraying them. It's it's a spurned lover motivation. I don't think it has the erotic overtones that you would ascribe to just recreational murder, to use that term again. I think that that's like a sexual sadist. I think that is, like I said, more Kemper, more Bundy. I think this has more to do with social constructs of the time and uh, a need to regain control of the situation. Right. I mean, some people do cite it as like an existential act. Carve out your moral code. You want to set your parameters. You want to take control. And there's like that just that illusion of gaining power by doing this. Like you, you mentioned Johnny Cash shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. And when he was writing that, he thought to himself, what is the worst reason that someone could kill somebody? Just to watch him die. Just to watch him die. Damn, that's catchy. Mm. <laughs> Good. And then he snorted a little cocaine <laughs> and went on. But I read some really interesting writing about this and about that idea of kind of what murder is. It's not always this big motive, like this one reason you're going to do it. It's not always this crime of passion. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it can start small and it comes from within and it can build up. And the murder may, in real life, seem senseless as they do in the songs so it's not necessarily a negative that there's not a motive in these songs it's very real world sometimes there's not a clear-cut motive no and i think that our human nature puts us in a position when we look at these songs or even like true crime stories or lifetime movies or wherever we're getting our murder and it compels us to ask why. It compels us to question and to search for reason and to try and make sense of the crimes. And in that way, we interact with them on a more personal level. We search more. We consider them more. Whereas if we're told, yeah, he killed a man over $50, we're like, oh, he killed a man over $50, and it doesn't stick with us. No. Shouldn't have stole his Stetson hat. Shouldn't have, no, I'm sorry, $80, Emmett Brown. By leaving that open to interpretation, we invite people to consider these murders and to interact with the circumstances in a more personal way and to project their own moral codes onto them in a way that just summing it up neatly doesn't do. Right, and as a great example of the Sweetheart Murder Ballad, I want to look at the song that was the inspiration for Nick Cave's song. You mean the medieval ballad, Liza Day? 
No. So this is a song called Down in the Willow Garden, also called Rose Cunley. And you didn't think we'd actually do a music episode without any music in it, right? We're not a tease. We're, we're going to let ourselves just go all the way with this one. And so we contacted Welcome Little Stranger, and they are the amazing, they're the other amazing husband and wife duo. In the podcasting world. Or maybe just in general. In general. In general, there's only two amazing married duos, <laughs> us and them. And they have... One of my favorite podcasts that I've talked about before called The Most Wonderful Wonder. And in their podcast, they take a look at a lot of old history and kind of forgotten stories. And they're musicians and they play some old folk songs. And they have done us the great honor of playing the song, which we will play for you now. See you on the flip side. I threw her 
Wasn't that absolutely fantastic? I want to thank them again for coming on the show. And you should definitely check out their podcasts. Yeah. Highly recommend it. We're very lucky to have their vocal stylings and musical abilities. And so in this song, Down in the Willow Garden, it is just your classic sweetheart murder ballad. And it is kind of considered an American murder ballad, but it may have roots in Ireland. This is kind of a hotly debated topic. Because Wait, folklorists argue? They do. What? About things. No. And stuff. Because there was a lot of transmission between Ireland and the United States of folk songs. Because people were kind of going back and forth between them. People were coming from Ireland to the United States. They'd find out it was not the land of... Milk and honey. Honey and potatoes. streets paved in gold and etc. And so they went back to potatoes. Mm-mm. Until there were no potatoes. <laughs> and then they came back. <laughs> and so there were a lot of people that were going back and forth between the states and Ireland. And also a lot of people after the Civil War went back to Ireland to fight in the Finian Rebellion. Oh my God, the Finians. Okay, so the Dollop, another podcast that I love, does some really amazing episodes on the Finians. And uh, you should probably check that out because it is well worth your time. You will learn so much. You will laugh. You will cry. You probably won't cry. You'll laugh. But go listen to this. But, you know, the, the strongest evidence I think that it might come from Ireland is that William Butler Yeats references it. Well, yeah, he has some cred there. And there's also a version of it collected in 1811. In Ireland? Right. And it was similar to the songs sung in the United States. But, you know, in this modern song, as you heard, this woman and her lover go down to the willow garden as they're a courting, and he poisons her. Yeah. With a bottle of burgundy or burglar wine. Depending on who you ask. <laughs> then he stabs her with his knife or okay. saber. All right. Then sometimes he beats her with a rock. Just sometimes. And then he throws her in the river. So that's four ways. He kills her four ways. All the ways. All the ways. Okay. Overkill, we call that now. Hazelwood would have a field day with this one. And in the song, he is remorseful. He kind of repents. Whoops, he says. Yeah, he says that his father said that he would get him off. Wait, what? Yeah, that money. Oh, for murder. Yeah. Oh. That money would set me free if I would murder that dear little girl whose name was Rose Conley. That rhymes nicely. Right. But then his father is sitting there teary-eyed. For a son soon shall walk to yonder scaffold high. My race is run beneath the sun. The scaffold now waits for me. For I did murder that dear little girl. His name was Rose Conley. At least he said he did it and told us all from the scaffold and we don't have to wonder if he was wrongfully convicted and we can all sleep at night knowing that justice has been done. Sure, I mean, justice is done. I mean, that's, that's an important part. He sometimes, killed her four times. All the ways. <laughs> and then he sang about it. And, you know, sometimes the song starts with that come all ye mm-hmm. lines. Faithful. Sometimes in the song he does, like, kind of proclaim his name. And that he planned to marry her. And again, like using his name and her name, it makes it more real. It's friend of a friend. It's like, oh. Um, like an urban legend. Yeah, it's very urban legendy. And his name changes so much over time. And it's so funny to me to see like the letters that are dropped and added and you know the versions of his name that come up in different songs. And it's great because that really does indicate that it, this moved around through oral tradition and had an organic transmission in the areas where it was popular because it's just a misunderstanding a lot of times of the name. 
Right, there's even that misunderstanding of like, is it Burgundy wine or Burglar's wine? So the Irish version or the Irish song that is most closely associated with it is Rosie O'Connell. Right, that is what it's titled. And when I Googled that, my computer asked me if I meant Rosie O'Donnell. And I didn't. (laughs) And I was offended. And in the older Irish traditions, a lot of times the devil does come into play. He is what inspires this murder, saying, But Satan and temptation has overcome me and caused me to murder that fair young lady called Rose Condalee. But that comes back again, kind of post-Civil War in America, when the devil motif gets popular and picked up and kind of, you know, devil went down to Georgia. Not really. But um, when you have, like, Robert Johnson and people recording and sort of that uh, influence of, like, the literal disembodied devil, you start seeing the devil again in America. Oh, right. And so this hits so many of our themes of our sweetheart murder ballad. You have that kind of ruined woman. You have the man wanting out, not wanting to get in there. He throws her in the river. It's told from that first-person perspective. There's a lot of times that warning to women, come and listen to this cautionary tale. He confesses that he did it, he's remorseful, and he is punished. And there's even those old school supernatural elements in it. So I want to take a moment to talk about misogyny and water. Well, that's an interesting combination. It sounds like a bad drink. It's actually the name of a really bad band. Okay, so I found an excellent paper that was such fantastic source material and so i want to mention it by name and we're gonna have links to it on our site and it's called this murder done misogyny femicide and modernity in 19th century appalachian murder ballads and it's by christina ruth hasty so she talks about the importance of the idea of femicide in these songs and it was a term that was sort of put forth in the 1970s and it discusses murders of women by men motivated by hatred contempt pleasure, or a sense of ownership. So she spends a lot of time talking about the water symbolism in these songs because so many times the women's bodies are displayed in water, whether or not they actually die from drowning. They're thrown into the river. They're discarded in the river or the lake or the pond or whatever. And she says that water is important because it represents a sort of liminality, an in-between state. This liminality is reflected in The fact that the murders cannot take place within the safe walls of the town. The women have to be lured out of town in order to be murdered. It's like lured out of the protection of society. Right. The patriarchal, paternalistic society that would have patted them on their heads and told them how pretty they were. Had they just stayed where they were supposed to. Stay on your pedestal. Oh, well, that's another form of liminality. A woman cannot exist completely on the pedestal, nor completely in the pit. And that's another part of this, is, you know, these women cannot be completely condemned, nor can they be completely pitied. They have to be somewhere in between. We feel for them because they were murdered horribly, but they really did bring it upon themselves. I say with sarcasm. And in that context of, like, this weird in-between, this, like, she is both to be condemned and pitied, you have the male standing opposite her, And his sexual behavior is never really called into question or condemned in the ways that hers is. He's condemned for his murder. Even outside the idea of the water, it's just the general idea of the dead female body. Corpse. It's a corpse. I feel like we we need to say that. The idea of the beautiful, dead, feminine body is something that is a hugely represented motif throughout Western 
culture and literature. You can look at Clarissa. You can look at Edgar Allan Poe's Legia, the Grimm Brothers' Snow White, and they all reinforce that claim that culture uses art to dream the deaths of beautiful women. There's this idea of the aestheticized and eroticized representation of the dead feminine body. This kind of allows Western culture, especially if you look at it from that kind of Victorian standpoint, to repress and articulate its unconscious knowledge of death. By localizing death away from self into the body of a beautiful woman. Right, and this makes me think about The Lady of Shalott, the poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson, in which the Lady of Shalott is kind of imprisoned in an ivory tower near the conveniently rhyming Camelot, and then she sees the conveniently rhyming Lancelot in her mirror as she is weaving her web that she has been tasked with weaving. And she realizes that she's activated this curse that was put upon her at birth, which... Yeah, that's being a woman. The womanly curse. Yes, Eve's curse, those things. But she has a real curse, too. But it represents Yeah, that. Yeah, I'm just in, in addition to that, it's not like implying. But anyway, she flings herself out the window and puts herself in a boat and decides to drift down to Camelot because she realizes it's all for naught, which also conveniently rhymes, but not on purpose. She's in the boat, and she freezes to death before she gets to Camelot. And so this boat drifts in to Camelot with the Lady of Shalott inside. Everyone comes out and looks at how beautiful she is. She scribbled her name on the outside of the boat, Lady of Shalott, which is the only name she gets. And everyone remarks upon her beauty and how perfect she is. And she's sort of idealized by everyone who sees her, including Lancelot, who's like, she's a real babe. And they totally would have matched on Tinder had she had that instead of a mirror. Oh, I think he still swiped right on her dead body. Yeah, I think he probably did too. And that's which, kind of the point. <laughs> yeah. But she, in that way, kind of this anonymous symbol of death drifting through the middle of town allows people to look at death and not be afraid of it, to think it's beautiful. And then we have that kind of Santa Muerta idea that comes back here. where the Death is part of everything. And death is woman. And kind of what Keats was talking about. Right. Death comes for us all. Yes. And so... Elizabeth Bronfen states that when artists make representations of death as sexual fantasy, a spectator can continue to indulge in that morbid fascination of looking at a corpse without having truly to confront the fear of death. Thus, the desire to look at a dead woman's body is aligned with denial and with the desire to control the uncontrollable. So that fits again with our ideas of, of maybe we're murdering this person just to, to gain control. It's kind of existential idea of trying to establish. I'm establishing myself and my moral code. I'm not going with your moral code. It's perfectly fine to do this. I'm gaining control by doing this. Well, there was a huge fear around feminine independence at this time. The cultural awareness was tuned in to the idea that women were thinking. Stop it. Women were thinking. Thinking ideas in their heads. I'm glad you're thinking. I'd have to talk twice as much. <laughs> We're going to do this as, as a Victorian podcast one day. And I'll just say, yes, dear. Yes, Whatever dear. you say, dear, the entire time. And everyone will be bored. And then you can get the vapors. <laughs> can I? Of course, if we talked about hysteria and how to treat it, we might be very popular. <laughs> That's an urban legend. I don't know. I think it can definitely improve some moods. That that was a prevalent treatment as an urban legend. It was a treatment. It existed. But it was a quacky treatment. <laughs> Everything was a quacky treatment. No, uh, we'll do an episode. <laughs> but yeah, women were perceived as these like 
delicate objects that could go off the rails at any time and needed to be taken care of and controlled, and they earned their right for protection by behaving themselves. And so that was sort of the social responsibility of men in a roundabout way to kind of quell the threat of a woman gone rogue. Right. We can't have her running around with her ideas and sexuality. That would be terrible. Yeah, okay. As I sit here with my ideas and my sexuality. (laughs) So back to misogyny and water. Now that we have flitted down that path. Floated down that path? Oh, no, that's not what I said. (laughs) Water is sort of always linked to feminine sexuality. Like like water as the life bringer and also the destroyer. <laughs> right. Well, water is seen as like a life-giving force. It brings life to an arid desert. It sustains life. It nurtures life. It's beautiful and pure and clear. And that's one interpretation of why it's linked to feminine sexuality. So there's another interpretation? Yeah. And that is? It's because we leak Oh, do, do you need a towel? No, I don't need a towel. Uh, but we cry. I cry. Well, yeah, but you're a lady. I mean, I, I don't cry. <laughs> I haven't cried since I was four years old, and I skinned my knee. And then you were slapped in the face and told to stop it, and you did. Forever. Forever. <laughs> but we cry, and we, uh, we lactate. I don't do that. Yeah, and we menstruate. Definitely don't do that. And the only way we do anything important in our entire life is by taking in the male fluids past during intercourse and getting pregnant leaking and taking in fluids kind of gives us meaning <laughs> well, look at that <laughs> look at you leaking fluids aren't you fantastic here you go have some water oh honey stop stop with the wallpaper leave it on the walls it's better on the walls i know you don't like yellow but so women's sexuality is tied water as we have established in that fantastic conversation and Because women are linked to water, a lot of times when people have to imagine how to kill women, they imagine killing them in water. It's a frequent mode of death in female literary characters. And J. Roberta Kohlfeldt wrote an entire dissertation on swimming and drowning in female literary characters, which is excellent. But she says that drowning has long been the punishment for sexually transgressive women in literature. And she says there are some practical reasons for this, like prior to 1920, Women rarely learned how to swim. Boys were allowed to play in ponds and go out and learn how to do all those things, but women just weren't. They weren't allowed to ride horses either, but that's a topic for another day. And they also had to wear these big, heavy, crazy, layered ensembles of skirts and petticoats and corsets and all. And that would have made it really hard to float. So there is a higher likelihood that if a woman fell into a body of water, she might drown because she had 87 pounds of clothing to haul out with herself and no experience swimming. Water is also associated with women because women are associated with the moon. Oh, so like the cycle of the moon and tides Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. lunacy. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, we have cycles. We go crazy like the moon. This is all very flattering. I'm enjoying this so much. (laughs) Super accurate. We leak and we're like the moon. Well, I mean, my Catholic bells ring. And it's yeah. just like Christian bells. Christian bells. I guess. Let's just call them Catholic They're bells. They're Catholic bells. And I mean, I think uh, of baptism. Oh, yeah. And no, we that... talk about this ruined, impure woman. Right. And so you can understand this through a Catholic Christian lens a couple of ways. Like you can see it as sort of this man initiating the rite of baptism and washing away the woman's sins. 
So kind of him. You're welcome. Or you can see it as a sacrifice. He's like offering her as a like blood sacrifice for the sin he's committed. Uh, Maybe. Uh, I mean, he's already killed. Uh, Depends on which song you listen to and how many times he kills her. Four times. Four times, yeah. But when the body is thrown into the water, invariably, it does a crazy thing. It floats. It floats. And it gives the woman a voice after death. And it allows her to tell people she's been murdered. And she's on display for everybody to see. And people realize that this beautiful creature floating in the water, not bloated or gross at all. No, just absolutely lovely. Swipe right. Lancelot. <laughs> Lancelot 69. No. That's his username. His Facebook <laughs> says, it's complicated. King Arthur's like, bro, have you seen Guinevere? He's like, nah, nah, dude. I don't like redheads. <laughs> and then he turns to Percival and he's like, dude, the carpet totally matches the drapes. <laughs> Does he turn to Percival and he's like, dude, found the Holy Grail last night. <laughs> and Percival was like, what, where? He's like, ugh. Dude, bro. Holy Grail. All right, all right. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Merlin's Tinder profile says, that ruckus was not caused by two dragons. <laughs> so anyway, we have either baptized or sacrificed our poor sweet maiden fair. She's not a maiden fair. She's a fallen woman. Right. She was a maiden fair. And then she did bad, 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 bad things all by herself without the man doing anything wrong. By herself. Completely. Yeah. Yes. So I read an interesting paper by Robert Broad discussing the fallen woman in water. He says that falling into water can be suggestive of a woman actually giving in to sexual temptation. Is he Freudian? Yes, actually, he is. He talks about Freud a whole bunch. (laughs) It's excellent paper. But he says 19th century literature was essentially, basically, and totally obsessed. He doesn't say, I'm paraphrasing, with the idea of the fallen woman, the soiled dove, the woman that was good and then she wasn't. And these women were seen as different from prostitutes who took up their lusty trade in order to eat food, you know, to, su- to support themselves and had agency. But these women just made a mistake. They started out good and went bad. Their grand mistake was sacrificing their innocence, which I love that phrase. They allow themselves to be ruined. That is their big mistake. All by themselves. All by themselves. And he mentions that like deflowering scenes or sexual assaults often take place near bodies of water in literature. Women often go into the water after they realize the consequences of what they have done and how society perceives them now. Like to kill themselves. Yes. Or sometimes the men kill them. And they're either purifying themselves or washing away the object of their transgression. And, you know, again, we get the, like, maybe he's trying to wash her off and make her clean again. Maybe he's sacrificing her so he's clean again idea. Well, we've mentioned that classic idea of the drowned beauty. And the image is often associated with the legend of Eliza Day. And that's of Ophelia. Right. And Ophelia is from Hamlet by Shakespeare, who did not exist. I'm just kidding. He totally did. She is Hamlet's love object. And we find out through the course of the play that she has either accidentally fallen into some water and died or she killed herself. But no foul play is suspected. And Ophelia's association with water is very interesting because her character is 
quite hard to pin down throughout the course of the play. She changes. I mean, the way I say it when I talk about people like this is like, she's whoever she's around. And in the same way that liquid can become the shape of whatever container is used to hold it, Ophelia changes throughout the course of the play. So she's just this fluid, intangible, hard to pin down character. Right. And the only thing that does define her that gives some definite course of action to her in the play is characterized by water, her drowning, her death. That is a permanent fact. I guess that's the fact that can be pinned down. Ophelia dies. But then we don't even know how. She might have fallen in if she did not kill herself picking flowers. Right. Flowers are actually a really big deal with Ophelia, too. We're back to the rose imagery of the Nick Cave song and the rose image of Rose Conley. She was gathering flowers and she like kind of shimmied out on a branch, as one does, to go get the flowers that are growing in the water. And she fell in or she threw herself in or she fell in and didn't try to get out. Either way. But... You know, one of her big scenes in the play is when she comes out and she's handing out flowers to everyone. And each of these flowers has like a specific association. They're all little jabs at people. And there was an idea in Elizabethan culture where the material symbolism of flowers was very well known. Like, as well as we know that green means go and red means stop, people knew the meanings of different flowers. And that's sort of this indirect way that she is allowed to speak her mind through in the play and i find that interesting because as we've said like we do have this recurring theme of flowers in the murder ballads and the women are symbolized as flowers and that and they're symbolized as roses which are pure beauty perfection especially in the context of the romantic theme of annihilating beauty or beauty being fleeting depending on who you ask you see that women are kind of reduced to these ornamental temporary things. And so going back to where a lot of these murder ballads take place, and that is in this like rural setting in Appalachian mountains with these very poor, illiterate kind of people. And these are usually the characters that get themselves into this kind of trouble. Right. They don't know any better, these poor, innocent country girls. So that actually works really well with the classical themes of ballads, just in general. And it goes back to the 12th century in France when the pastorals were very in vogue. And that stock character of the shepherdess, the naive little farm girl, was of key importance to all sorts of narratives. So what did she represent? She was vulnerable and she didn't have the protection of the aristocratic system. And there was at this time, at the time that a lot of these ballads were being popularized, especially there was a huge tension between what society was prescribing for society girls and what was available to more rural, isolated women. And the moral codes and even to some degree like fashion and self-presentation were just not feasible for these women. So just by having less access to leisure and indoor plumbing, they were already transgressive. You know, they had to work more. They had more children. They were out in the sun and were not lily white. They got their hands dirty. And there was something about that that marked them as just not quite up to par. They were a little lesser. Right, and a little subversive. 
because they were outside of that domestic sphere that was so important to the Victorian woman. They dealt in public life. If you had a bunch of kids, you were considered to be promiscuous. It's like you can have four kids. You may have given birth 12 times, but, you know, that was just a mark of not being able to keep it together. And then also at this time, that turn of the 1800s and 1900s, there's what we like to call today science. Science? It really wasn't science, but it was masquerading as science, and people were really using science to try to identify gender and say the huge differences between men and women are completely linked to their biological gender. Oh, oh, do tell me more. What was woman like? What did biology dictate for the fairer sex? Well, you know, they should represent purity and innocence. And Dr. William Acton at the time wrote that if you were a good woman, you wouldn't indulge. The best mothers and wives are managers of households that know little or nothing of sexual indulgence. Love of home, children, and domestic duties are the only passions that they feel. And that's from 1865. Oh, okay. My feminist horses are winning. So we're supposed to, we're supposed to, Dr. Acton says that we're supposed to have sex only enough to get pregnant and not enjoy it at all and really just not like it much and then only care about household upkeep children and taking care of them and that should be enough and then we should be happy or we are unnatural aberrations yeah that's about right okay okay uh we're gonna have to pause a second while i go have a rage fit in the middle of the yard are you gonna are you gonna clean (laughs) you're cute uh no (laughs) but a lot of this was a response to the changing woman's role in society as the industrial revolution is kicking off you have society just at odds with the new mobility and independence that women have. They're getting out of the home. They're having jobs. Well, and you had the Civil War a few years previously, and literally everyone with a penis was fighting, and like three girls. That pretended they had them. Yeah, yeah, they did. We saw something similar during World War II, where women went and joined the workforce, and it happened on a smaller scale at this time women were taking up baking and selling bread and things like that where their husbands would have been doing the jobs had they been home but you had this like little experience of women getting out into the public sphere and liking it a little bit right so there was this new need to warn people Mm -hmm. to warn people of these new opportunities to transgress against your womanly virtues Oh, yes. And this is where we get that beautiful idea of the cult of the true woman, which is just something that's bandied about in feminist writing. And I adore it. But in the American South and in this area, there really is a very you know, codified gender text. And this is something that is still prevalent today. I mean, it's nothing like it was back then. But those remnants are hanging on oh, yeah. like a tattered confederate flag on the back of a 1983 f-150 we saw that today i'm kidding that was beautiful honey thank you (laughs) right and this is visible in like the continued preservation of traditions like debutante balls and beauty pageants being popular in the south and you know women's magazines being regionally specific which i'm gonna say that the south really does just have amazing magazines like garden and gun Gardening is actually a good magazine. No, it is. I just think that being Southern, like, it deserves its own magazine. 
So within the genre of the murder ballad, we have to have our stock characters. And they are the murdered girl, the murderer lover, and the grief-stricken family. And there are some supporting details that must accompany each of these stock characters. The murdered girl must embody, in the beginning, the most prized virtues of the day, which are modesty, thrift, generosity, and patience, choosing these over titles of status and wealth. These ideals are described by a 19th century writer, Mr. Fitzhugh, Gesundheit. can be considered evident in women so long as they are nervous, fickle, capricious, delicate, diffident, and dependent. Man will worship and adore her. Her weakness is her strength, and her true art is to improve that weakness. If she is obedient, she is of little danger of maltreatment. If she stands upon her rights, is coarse or masculine. Man loathes and despises her, and ends by abusing her. Abusing her? Abusing her. So it is important to point out that you know, domestic abuse was completely legal at this time. And encouraged. And encouraged. <laughs> right, one North Carolina court in 1864 stated... A husband could discipline his wife with as much force as necessary to control an unruly temper and make her behave herself. I don't think I have enough violence to do that. You don't. <laughs> but violence was very normalized. Violence against women. Violence against men, too. But violence against... By other men. <laughs> violence against women was very normalized in the society if you were not fitting in with that role that was placed for you you could be slapped into it (laughs) but you know as we're talking about there's just that that fight against domesticity and independence and sexuality and what role you're supposed to play and it changed so much at this time period well and at this time you it was seen that you could either be domestic and maternal or Big capital O-R or you could be sexual. There was no overlap. And that presents a hell of a problem. You want people to be maternal, but you don't want them to have sex. That's interesting. Only like three times. (laughs) Three babies, three times. So there were these great things written at the time called marital hygiene manuals. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So this is from a book called Unmentionable, which is very mentionable, and you should probably pause and go read it. They would say things like, children conceived outside of the traditional act of marriage should be considered monsters, which was the technical term for any child born with a deformity at the time, which is just, again, classy. Mm, That's nice. Yeah. So the traditional way of copulating was for the woman to lie on her back and not bend her knees at all. Don't bend your knees. If your knees rise at all and your feet are supposed to be like five inches apart or whatever. How's that work? I don't know. Do that math. And that was the only way to conceive good children. Even within the context of marriage, sexuality is really just taboo and not to be enjoyed and should be as miserable for everyone as possible. Sounds like a good time. Yeah. Maybe that's why they killed each other. So it was just terrible. Everything was terrible. And then you got consumption. The Victorian era in a nutshell. And then we come to our other stock character, our lover murderer. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that these aren't always the, like, gentlemanly character. A lot of times they are that slick guy that comes into town, the carpetbagger, the outsider that's not part of the community. Well, sometimes it is 
it is someone that's in the community, someone that that has money, but I think they that can buy it off, mm-hmm. like in Rose Conley. But it's not always one or the other. There's a lot of variation there. I think that's interesting because some of the papers I've read don't mention that. No, and it occurred to me today, like there are so many songs that are like, I'm but a poor boy, nobody loves me. That's, that's Queen. Queen. That's Queen. Yeah, that's Queen. Um, but it, it's like, I'm a poor boy, I don't have anything to offer you but my love, please come with me. It kind of does this like average Joe versus the slick outsider thing sometimes it's the it's the rich gentleman right but he doesn't want to be tied down he wants to go on and keep partying Mm -hmm. but it's very seldom a good old boy that is that is killing a sweetheart you know the working class it's usually somebody that's a little bit of an outsider the idea of masculinity in the south and in the appalachian region is probably as conflicted as the female identity because gender politics and sexuality were so closely regulated by society at large and by the church. The church not being capital C church here, more Protestant offshoots. But masculinity is a very unstable idea for men in the South as well. At its best, when they're presenting as everything they're supposed to be, it's just simple. Simple and stable. Mm Mm-hmm. They provide for their family, go along with the community, and that's it. Yes, men. But that is way too simplified of a definition. No, it is. And so the final character that has to be present in order for these murder ballads to resonate is the grieving family. Now, one might think that the grieving family is only associated with the victim of the murder, but one would be wrong. This is the South. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody's related. Therefore... The family of the murderer grieves as well, which I think is really interesting. Right. In Rose Conley, we have the dad. He's crying as his son is walking up to the gallows. He's showing emotion. No. Yeah. Unheard of. But he was a gentleman. Therefore, he does not embody the traditional work ethic and simplicity of the Southern male. No, true. And it's interesting because as time goes by, we start seeing the female members of the family on either side expressing agency. One song, Pearl Bryan, which is on a playlist, the mother of the murdered girl goes to the murderer and demands that he tell her where the rest of her daughter's remains are. Repeatedly throughout the song, she is one of the few characters that takes on action i also think that you can look at the community and the society there as kind of a representative family no absolutely and they always seek justice and they almost always get it even if they don't in reality oh no they'll get it in the songs which is going to be the title of some folk singers next album but yeah it's that disembodied we of faulkner it's that community that is ubiquitous in southern culture but these murders don't always happen in the south they don't and the ideas behind the murder ballads and these original true crime novels these original true crime documentaries can happen anywhere even somewhere as waspy as the adirondack mountains now come all ye ladies and listen to our our story of woe and heartbreak and murder. Big Moose Lake. And Big Moose Lake. So, as one paper reported, this is the story of Grace Brown, pathos, and the tragedy, unequaled, in fiction. The story begins on Friday, July 13th of 1906, 
When the Democrat and Chronicle in Rochester, New York, reports that two have drowned in the Adirondacks, young woman's body is recovered. Companion is still in the lake. The body of Miss Grain Brown of Ostley was recovered from Big Moose Lake of the Adirondacks this afternoon. The lake is still being dragged for the body of her companion, Carl Graham, of Albany. The young people arrived at Big Moose yesterday, and after registering at the Glenmore Hotel, engaged a boat and went on the lake for a row. At noon today, the boat was found upside down. Efforts are being made to locate the relatives of the couple. The next day, it was reported that foul play was suspected. Mysteries surrounding findings of girl's body in Big Moose Lake. All circumstances lead to the conclusion that foul play was committed at Big Moose Lake Wednesday night or early morning yesterday. And Miss Grace Brown of South Ostalic, whose remains were brought to the city today by Dr. Coffin. No. Yep. Of a lion, coroner of Herkimer County, was sent to her death by a young man who had been her companion in a boat that was found bottom side up near her body. It was reported that the guest who registered as Carl Graham of Albany is believed to be Chester Gillette of Cortland, an employee at the Gillette Skirt Factory in that place where Miss Brown was also employed. Cannot be stated tonight with absolute positiveness that Gillette's body is not in Big Moose Lake, but circumstances indicate that he did not share the fate met by the young woman. Word from the scene of the tragedy tonight is to affect that although the lake has been thoroughly dragged, no trace of Gillette's body has been discovered. Coroner Coffin believes that it is one of foul play, and nothing will change his mind beyond finding the body of the young man in the waters of the lake. Foul play in the beautiful, dead, drowned woman. Oh, I've got another one for you. That same day, the headline read, Girl Murder Victim! So we've got a murder girl. Murder girl. Body found in the lake and man companion missing. She left with a sweetheart. A sweetheart. We've got all girl our keywords. <laughs> all of our keywords. Mystery of Big Moose Lake in the Adirondacks. Miss Grace Brown believed to have been killed and body left in lake. Man seen in wilderness answers description of girl's companion. Murder, the coroner says. Say it isn't so. The man starting out handled the boat an experienced oarsman. But there's a deep cut on the girl's right temple. A wound, which it is asserted, could not have been made after drowning. It might have been inflicted by the blow of an oar. Very suspicious. The post-mortem examination of the girl's body may disclose some reason for the murder, if one has been committed. A straw hat worn by Miss Brown's companion has been found at the lake. The linings were torn out, as if an endeavor had been made to throw as much mystery upon the man's identity as possible. Linings would have had his name. Right, he would have had like his initials. Mm-hmm. Right, And that's why Gillette used that name. Carl Graham. Because all of his luggage and everything had C-G. Because he was a prissy little pot. But then it goes on to say that subheadline here is just, just so you get the feel of the article. Wandering in the wilderness. About eight o'clock last night, three guides saw a man who answered to the description of the missing man hurrying through the woods on Eagle Bay Road. He was at least five miles from Eagle Bay Station. He was wearing a slouch hat. He was in the hut of the Adirondack Wilderness, and it would be impossible for a stranger to follow the trails through the forest. Unless he is an expert woodsman, he will starve to death in the wilderness. 
It is learned from Portland tonight that Miss Brown had been keeping company with Chester Dillette, aged 23. Brown's father, who reached here tonight from South Austelic, stated that she returned to Cortland from her vacation last Monday. She met Gillette, who was just starting for the Adirondacks on his vacation, and accompanied him. District Attorney Ward of Herkimer says that Sheriff Clock and several deputies left tonight for the scene of the tragedy. So, as the article The Story of Grace Brown states, Grace Brown lived 20 years a farmer's daughter who became a worker in a little factory town, one of 60 or 70 girls and one of many thousands of factories among the millions of humble workers who earned their bread by their hands. None was more obscure than she. Grace Brown died. The world that cared nothing about her living became concerned in her death, or rather, in the manner of it. Had she died from what the law is pleased to call natural causes, the world would have been as indifferent to her dying as it was to her living. But she was believed to have been murdered, wherefore the world took cognizance of it. And so all of the things we've been reading are from actual papers from that time, and we will be posting clips from those on our website. So this is the story of the murder of Grace Brown. And so as stated, she was a farmer's daughter. Our classic shepherdess, country girl. And she grew up on a dairy farm and eventually moved to Cortland to live with her sister and to work at the Gillette Skirt Factory. Eventually, her sister moved away and she became a boarder. As she was working in the factory, became involved with Chester Gillette. Notice that his name is the same as the name of the skirt factory, right? Right. So his uncle owned the factory. And he was working there over the summer between going to school. And he was quite a little hussy. Can a man be a hussy? I say he can. This one can. And he liked to go a courting. Like Froggy? Yes. And one of the ladies he was a courting was Miss Grace Brown. Mm Mm-hmm. And in all of his courting, as he would go to her sister's parlor, and they would stay up late at night, holding hands. Without chaperones. Yes. Eventually, he did ruin her now she was deeply in love and wanted to marry him and have lots of babies and live the perfect ideal little pastoral life let's just say he was not done according eventually he planned to go away with her to the adirondack mountains and they stayed in different hotels as i said he went by aliases with his initials And soon after, the couple arrived at the Glenmore Hotel on Big Moose Lake in the Adirondack Mountains. They took a little boat ride in a rowboat to go do some sightseeing. Now, it is an interesting point to point out that Grace could not swim, Mm -hmm. as we talked about earlier. Many women couldn't at this time. And along on the boat ride, Chester brought his suitcase and a tennis racket. Then, according to Chester, they just floated for a long period of time reading magazines and enjoying the sunshine. But after the couple did not return in the evening, the boatkeeper, Robert Morrison, sent people out to look for them. And by morning, there was still no word of the missing boat. Eventually, as we said, they found her body, along with the overturned boat, but no sign of Gillette. Until breaking news, arrest in Lake Mystery! murderer of Grace Brown of South Austelic in jail. Which, so much for innocent until proven guilty. Yellow journalism. Yay, yellow journalism. I quite enjoy yellow journalism now that I'm not subject to it. Utica, New York, July 14th. 
The man who murdered Grace Brown of South Austlick on Big Moose Lake Wednesday afternoon is under arrest. Again, so much for innocent until proven guilty. His name is Chester Gillette and his home is in Cortland. His arrest took place at the Arrowhead Inlet on Fourth Lake and he is now in the Herkimer Jail where he arrived at 7.30 o'clock tonight. Gillette has been fully identified as the man who accompanied Grace Brown upon her boat ride, which ended in her cruel murder and will bring him before the bar of justice upon the premeditated charge of murder. He stoutly denies he killed the girl, but his stories are conflicting and vague, and the circumstances are rising hourly, which indicate his guilt in such a positive manner that the Herkimer County authorities look to complete an early confession from the prisoner. They don't get one. So I'm going to give you a little further context before we continue. In this particular article, the one I'm looking at here beside it says, Mark Twain sick with annual attack. Oh, no. So, world-famous humorist says, it's only my regular siege of bronchitis. <laughs> it's not very funny. Kind of disappointed there, Mark Twain. Come on, Sam. So, here we have, young man accused of murder of Grace Brown will face jury at Herkimer, which thank you for saying he's accused and not guilty of it. Gillette did not notify authorities of the death. The explanation of Gillette at the time is that both he and the girl had fallen out of the boat. He said he did not tell of the tragedy for fear that he would not be believed. It is said that there is an abundance of evidence to show that Gillette was not thrown into the water. Coroner Coffin has not rendered an official verdict. It is claimed by the Herkimer County authorities that this report will show that the girl was dead before she struck the water. But there is a rumor that the defense has a letter purporting to have been written by Miss Brown in which she intimated that she was inclined to kill herself. This letter, it is said, was written from the Adirondacks to a girl in Cortland. Insanity may also be the defense of Gillette's parents, who were converts of Dowie and turned their property over to the Zion City. Yeah, they were Mormons. The explanation of Gillette at the time of arrest was that he and the girl both fell out of the boat, and he was unable to save her. Gillette shows no sign of nervousness. His wealthy relatives have not called on him or offered any assistance. Dad's not there willing to pay his way out. So as the trial starts out and gets rolling, there are theatrics? Oh, yeah. Just a sample here. Was it this girl? Asked Mr. Ward, pointing to the life-size portrait of Grace Brown in the courtroom. Just for starters. They're like, can we get a stay in this trial for two weeks as we have a portrait completed of her? Some of the things that were brought before the court include Gillette's new tennis racket found broken. It was discovered under a log three weeks after the death of Billy Brown. Oh, and if you would like to love Grace Brown a little bit more, she went by the name Billy because she liked a song about a man named Billy. A ballad? A ballad. An outlaw ballad? Yeah. About Billy the Kid. Yes. And she just liked it so much that people started calling her that and everyone called her that and she signed her letters that way and it's adorable it's the cutest thing ever and if you want to feel like Gillette's maybe not the worst person in the world and give him the benefit of the doubt for six seconds he started all of his letters to her dear kid the the headline here which headlines took up a lot more space back in the day continues her body was bruised jolting of wagon could not have caused wounds driver testifies Hat shown in court. Maker's marks had been removed to hide wearer's identity. Very suspicious. The headline here is ghastly. Ghastly, you say. Unborn child of victim in Gillette murder trial as exhibit. 
Right. So Grace Brown was pregnant at this time. And that is one of the reasons she wanted to marry Gillette. In later articles, it's estimated that she was about four months pregnant at the time of her murder. So this article goes on to say that a sensation was created in the Gillette murder case this morning when the prosecution offered as evidence the unborn child taken from the body of Grace Brown at autopsy. That seems excessive. Oh, all of the prosecution was pretty excessive. It's theatrical. District Attorney Ward offered the exhibit as number 99 and met an immediate objection from the defense. It has no bearing on the case and is only offered as a means for making the people's case spectacular. True. Envy. (laughs) Damn, that was good. Spectacular. It wasn't good. It was spectacular. In addition to the unborn child, the hat, the tennis racket, and the buggy driver's testimony about her bruising, they also created a sensation when they displayed for the court the wedding garments Made for Grace Brown, but never worn, because she died without becoming a bride. Interest was intense as the sad story of the wedding trousseau was told by Grace Brown's sister Frances. The district attorney read the letters that passed between Grace Brown and Chester Gillette during the past year, and a more pathetic recital was never given in a courtroom. Day after day, the country girl pleaded in her letters for Gillette to stand by her in her trouble. And when his replies seemed cold and unassuming, she would appeal to his manhood, chiding him, only to ask for his pardon in the next sentence. And one of the interesting things about this case is you can see its relation to these old English cases where they would print out the broadsides. They would print out that information, sensationalized information. There's so many news articles because D.A. Ward was all about talking to the press. He planned to sensationalize this. He wanted this to be the big story, and it was carried throughout the country. And even more, just as they used to print out the broadsheets and sell them at the public executions, they printed out copies of Grace Brown's love letters. And Chester Gillette's replies. And sold them at the courthouse. Which was full of women. Women went apeshit for this. They came all ye women to the courthouse. And that was something that the papers always talked about. I just thought it was so interesting. There was actually a very intentional strategy that Ward employed, and it's described in this article. The prosecutor is picturing the life narrative of the two young people from the beginning of their acquaintanceship. And he did. He made an effort to start at the beginning and progress through. He did not introduce the idea that she'd been murdered until it took place in the story. Right. He built the narrative as you would in a murder ballad. Right, and so this is actually from an article with the headline, Gillette and girl went boating, but only he returned. Slowly but surely, the prosecution is paving way to gallows for the man who ruined, then drowned, Grace Brown. Oh, it even rhymes. I know. So the letters were just such a sensation. Uh, Here from the New York Times. Grace Brown's letters stir audience to tears. Her pleas to Gillette read in trial. Police protect prisoner. On November 20th of 1906, pathetic love letters written by Grace Brown to Chester Gillette in the month before her tragic death when she was waiting at her home for him to come and marry her were the feature today in the trial of Gillette for the murder of the girl. The people packed the courtroom and the prisoner wept when they were read 
They were full of pleadings and fears, yet faith in the young man. Here's a sampling of some of Grace's letters. Chester, I've done nothing but cry since I got here. If you were only here, I would not feel so bad. I knew I should worry all the time. I do try to be brave, dear, but how can I when everything goes wrong? I cannot help thinking you will never come for me. But then I say that you can't be so mean as that. And besides, you've told me you would come, and you've never disappointed me when you said you would not. Everything worries me, dear, and I am so frightened. Again the following day. Chester, there isn't a girl in the world as miserable as I am tonight, and you have made me feel so. Chester, I don't mean that, dear. You've always been awfully good to me, and I know you will always be. You just want to be a coward. I know. Right, she's like calling him out. It's, it's so great. You just want to be a coward. I know you're not a coward. You just want to be one. And then the next day, Chester, if I could only die, I know how you would feel about the affair. And I wish for your sake, you need not be troubled. If I die, I hope you can then be happy. I hope I can die. The doctor says I will, and then you can do just as you like. I'm not the least bit offended with you. Only I am a little blue tonight, and I feel this way. Chester, please come and take me away. You won't ever know how much I wish you would come. Chester, I do want you to have a good time now, and I won't be cross. I think when I see you, dear, I shall be so glad I can't live. I hope you will be glad to see me. Go where you want to, dear, and don't be angry with me. I want you tonight, and I'm so blue. Pause. That sounds crazy to me. Like, that sounds real crazy. Right. I mean, I could see how, as a defense, you could really claim that she was a little nutso. And, I mean, she literally says, I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to die. If I could just see you, then I could die happy. And what does she do? She sees him, and then she dies. But that letter was read by the prosecution. In another letter, she says, I was telling Mama yesterday how you wrote, and I never got it. And she says, Why, Billy, if you wrote you, you would have received it. And I said, Mama, Chester never lies to me, and I know he wrote. If you were only here, dear, how glad I would be. Don't you think I'm awfully brave? I am doing so much better than I thought I should, and I think about you all the time. And wonder what you're doing. I'm so frightened, dear. Like, I hate that they call them pathetic letters. It just has such a negative connotation. But it's not what it means. Right. I, I agree. I agree. I think the word is used in a different way because they are sad. They are yeah. so, so sad. Well, pathetic means inducing pathos or sympathy. Right. But now, nowadays. It means think like of the pitiful. Word, right. Which right. is also. They are. Yeah. But it has a negative connotation. Yeah. I have done my best to be brave as possible these last weeks. But if you should not come, I will do something desperate. Oh, dear, dear, I can't see anything but just trouble. If I had strength, dear, I do believe I should walk to the river and throw myself in. It would be rather cowardly, and I despise a coward. But I would not be a bother to you any longer. Oh, Chester, the thought that I am... In your way just drives me crazy. How I want to die. No one but myself knows. All right, so that calls back to that idea of, even if it's not being killed four different ways and thrown into the river, that sometimes in literature you do see the woman drowning herself to 
atone for her sins. Right, and that's very Kate Chopin. That's super Southern motif. But yeah, and I don't necessarily think that she's saying she wants to atone or she feels she's done anything wrong. Like I don't see evidence of her regretting her relationship here, which is very different. I see her saying like, I wish I hadn't put you in this position, which she didn't, but whatever. And I see her saying like, I don't know what I'm going to do in a very practical sense. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to take care of myself. And she does say things like, you would smile if you knew how hard I'm trying to get strong. I don't care how rough my life is after next Saturday. I think I could carry packs like women peddlers, but I shall certainly die if you don't come. And she thinks she's equating herself with these like very poor lower class women. And she's talking about working and she's sort of looking for a way to make it work. You know, it's just a true dilemma. Like there's no good solution for her. She's saying, I will do anything for this. Yeah. And so there's another great article titled Murdered Girls Love Letters Lay Bare the Beauty of Her Soul. Billy Brown's simple story told in heart's blood may convict Gillette. The soul of this uncultured, untried girl without experience in the world is in these letters. And this soul shines forth from tawdry surroundings, pure even in the impurity of the body. So I think what that just said is women cannot exist wholly on the pedestal or in the pit. Pretty much. Yeah. Knowing that her heart is in these letters and her soul shines through from its tawdry surroundings, I think we do have to address the way that Gillette replies to her. My favorite Gillette quote in a letter to Grace Brown is, don't worry so much and think less about how you feel. It's like what every man wants to say. (laughs) Shut up. That's terrible. (laughs) I'm joking. No, you're not. This particular news article, Dead Girl's Notes Accuse Her Lover. All the sensitivity that that shows. Final letter most pathetic of all, it says. D.A. Ward broke down in reading the letter, which read, I'm about crazy now. I've been bidding goodbye to some of the things today. There are so many nooks, dear. All of them so dear to me. I have lived here nearly all my life. First, I said goodbye to the spring house with its great mass of green moss and then to the apple trees where we had our playhouse and then to the beehive, a cute little house in the orchard. And of course, all the neighbors who mended my dresses from a little tot up to save me a thrashing I richly deserved. Oh dear, what all this is to me. I know I shall never see any of them again. And Mama, great heavens, how I do love my Mama. I do not know what I shall do without her. Sometimes, I think, if I could tell Mama, but I can't. She has trouble enough as it is, and I could not break her heart like that. If I come back dead, perhaps, if she does not know, she will not be angry with me. I will never be unhappy again, dear. I wish I could die. You will never know what you have made me suffer. I find it interesting that the prosecution is who's presenting these because these almost seem like evidence of his suicide they seem like evidence of her wanting him to go through the shame and agony that she anticipated they seem like evidence of her wanting to die and wanting to punish him no, I definitely see that. And I just think it's so interesting that these were taken up as these like oh, they're so beautiful Oh, the tragedy that he killed her. She had so much life ahead of her when she's like, I'm going to go drown myself. I wish I could die. I mean, then you think of it as that classic, like, 
if you don't love me, I'm just going to go kill myself. That people still do today. Yeah, I see it. Is this a drunk text? (laughs) (laughs) Is this the 1906 drunk text? Similar. I mean, she definitely was not editing these letters. No, it's so funny because she's like, I think you're terrible. Forgive me for saying that. I know you just want to be terrible. Like, Like, not realizing she could just rewrite it. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, oh, I already hit send. But even with all this evidence, there was some scientific evidence. They did have the autopsy and coroner's reports. Of course, the blow to the head matching the tennis racket, along with the absence of much water in the lungs, showing that it's very unlikely that she drowned as a cause of death. So in a this would only happen in 1906 way, Chester Gillette, handsome devil, by the way, like totally like looks the part of the slick outsider from roguish killer yeah Yeah, that he takes the stand sounds like a poor decision i wasn't the da still ate him up anyway but i mean like he did a good job with his testimony from everything i've read like his story stayed consistent he answered all the questions and he didn't get rattled and there's a lot of talk about how composed he was which made people question him more not one bit emotional oh we'll get there but i love this Did you hate the girl? asked the prosecutor, reading from a number of letters that Grace Brown had sent the defendant, in which she complained of his apparent neglect of her. No, I did not hate her, answered Gillette. Here Gillette, for a second, diverted his glance for the jury, and Mr. Ward shouted, Look at the jury and not at your counsel. Attorney Mills and Thomas interposed objections to the district attorney's manner toward the witness, and the court sustained them holding that Mr. Ward had no right to direct where the witness put his gaze. Where's your male gaze now? Uh, And there was some questioning in that same session about like, so you say you swim in the ocean? And Gillette was like, sure. And did you swim in the girl's aid? Prosecutor says, and he says, I did not. And the prosecutor said, when she leaped into the water, which he made a grammatical error, from the boat, what did you say you did? I reached out my hand to water, and the boat tipped over. And you, who swam in the lakes in Washington and in the Pacific Ocean, left Grace Brown there without swimming in her aid? So now he's saying that, like, even if everything he's saying is true, he's still guilty of her murder because he didn't attempt to save her. I buy that. That's a really good point. It's like, okay, even if she did try to jump out of the boat and kill herself, you could pull her out. Her dress probably weighed 400 pounds. It wasn't. No, I doubt that. (laughs) And in this same examination, an interesting point brought up. The first story was a lie, says the subheadline. Gillette, during the first examination, stated that his version of the tragedy, as narrated under Sheriff Clock, a few minutes after his arrest, to the effect that the affair was an accident, that he had tipped the boat over accidentally while they were picking pond lilies. And that was a lie. Now your attorneys tell a different story than the one you told under Sheriff Clock, asked the district attorney. They did. Now did your attorneys tell you to tell a different story than the one that you told to Sheriff Clock? And he says, they did. They told me to tell the truth. But I think that's especially interesting because what did he claim they were doing when she fell into the water? Picking lilies. Picking flowers. And actually, if we're going to go back to our Shakespearean Elizabethan flower symbolism, Lilies are the symbols of purity, but if they're yellow lilies, they are the symbol of falsehood. We don't get a color. We're not that lucky. I want a color. We're not that lucky. But I do think it's really interesting. Like, throughout 
the murder ballads and Ophelia. I mean, just everywhere you look. Rose Conley. Yeah. And where the wild roses grow, we have all these flowers. So as the trial closed, we get an integration of the grieving family. Chester Gillette has written his father and mother in Denver, Colorado, that he will endeavor to resume his work in the electric business as soon as he has been freed. While studying in college, he wants to earn his way by selling automobiles, he writes home. Chester has no idea that he may be convicted. Some of his letters, which were passed through the deputy sheriff's hands for inspection before they were mailed, read as follows. Dear Mother, have no alarm. I am sure I will go free. I was so afraid when I was arrested that I told many things wrong, but I did not kill Grace Brown. Dear Lucille, I have testified, and I think the jury does not believe that I am a murderer. Your letters and telegrams have cheered me more than anything else. I expect to go free and see your dear face soon again. Dear Father, do not believe all you read about me. I hope none of you will believe me guilty. I am sure the jury will acquit me. When I am free, could you arrange to meet me in Chicago or Kansas City? Gillette, in another letter to his mother, wrote, I have felt terribly lonesome in the court with nobody of my family near me, but I know that you have been praying for me just the same. I read the Bible you sent me every night, and it gives me great comfort. I just think that's so interesting. It is. It's just like a little insight into his, how he's feeling, what he's thinking. There's no way they could think I did this. And you have to wonder if he's like a psychopath and just doesn't, or a narcissist and like doesn't understand how anybody could think he did it. Or if he's just doing it for his family, like these letters, just trying to portray this for his family. Or if he's actually innocent. Uh, It's a possibility. I mean, I think it's unlikely. (sighs) Then we have the headline, Chester Gillette is guilty, but not one bit emotional. After he's convicted, he takes a pencil from his pocket and writes the message. Father, I am convicted. Signed, Chester. The prosecutor says of him, the courageous scoundrel said upon the stand that he asked Brace Brown to go with him on decoration day. A man can be drilled into a long story to cover guilt but the lie will come out so that leads me to ask did the lie come out what was the truth do we know i mean there's a lot of information pointing to her having these kind of suicidal thoughts and tendencies but there's also a lot of damning evidence for chester gillette do we ever find out do we get that Murder ballad confession on the way to the gallows. We got to do one thing first. We've got to read the post-trial summation of the big moose. That's the headline. This is my favorite thing that's written about the trial. It is presumed that nearly all of our readers have read how Chester Gillette lied and ruined Grace Brown and then lured her into the Adirondack Mountains and then sneaked away leaving her lifeless body in the waters of Big Moose Lake. This is one of the very saddest stories in the history of our country. The pleading letters written by Grace, the nearly distracted girl, are all models of pathetic rhetoric. Shame, sorrow, hope, their faith, and love are wonderfully portrayed in the betrayed girl. Hers was a sorrow that she had to bear alone, as she could not take it to her mother. She, with a forlorn hope, went into the wilderness with her strong young lover, who, if needs be, should have died for her. But he says he saw her drown without turning a hand to help her. Others say he had tried to poison her, and on the lake he killed her before the body was thrown into the water. Oh, this was the wrong kind of dying love. 
This was a killing love. Am I my sister's keeper? A voice says. Thou art the man, a voice says. Poor Grace Brown was murdered long before she went into the swamp where the fiend possessed Gillette. Like Mother Eve, she believed the cunning, handsome liar. Poor little factory girl. She had come to contend not only with herself, but also with the forces of earthly, sensual, and the satanic. And her strong brother used all this mighty engineering of several kingdoms and at least two worlds to crush her down under the heel of a sneering, to crush her down under the heel of sneering, laughing, and seemingly triumphant devils. Now we have come to a point where human language is weak, pitifully weak. Now let us stand aside and hold the tremendous, awful eloquence of the eternal justice and its forked lightnings, and let them play as its anger shakes the mountains and the seas, Far-off clouds leap up from the horrible lakes of flaming wrath, and myriads of ghastly faces are turned towards the heaven's brass. Yes, Chester Gillette fully deserves the electric chair for his crimes. Before he came to Big Moose Lake, he deserved them. Then, if by blow from a racket, or a cruel threatening word, or a satisfied look as she went down crazed into the waters with no hand or finger of his reached out for help, he is again or thrice a murderer. More than double died a murderer. Let him die, having, if possible, made peace with heaven. His happiness is gone from this world. That might as well be a murder ballad. <laughs> it was my favorite thing I found from the whole trial. So we do, we have, you know, he's found guilty. He's sentenced to the electric chair. And then we have this, like, condemnation. But on the other side... People really respected the way he handled himself. And this is really interesting. Tragic murder of poor Billy Brown avenged as Gillette is executed. Terrible end for the young man who murdered his innocent victim to hide his frightful perfidy. No legal mistake was made in his electrocution. There's your answer. How is that my answer? There was a priest who came out and addressed the media after his electrocution. And he said that no legal mistake was made because of the priest-patient confidentiality, whatever. Like, being a priest, he would not comment further. See, that's the perfect end to our murder ballad. <laughs> like, the man of God comes and I lay down my sins to him. So this story, the story of Grace Brown and Chester Gillette, is a prototypical murder ballad story it is made to be a murder ballad it fits every single requirement Mm -hmm. of being a murder ballad and it did become a murder ballad yeah it's big moose lake big moose lake it's excellent it's one that is very obscure but you can find recordings of it we'll have it on the website yeah sure enough not only was this fictionalized as a murder ballad but it went on to become an opera Several novels. Yes, including... American Tragedy. Which is, oddly enough, always referred to in cases that mirror this. As it's like, oh, it's like a real-life American Tragedy. And people are like, no, 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 no. American Wrong. Tragedy is, yeah, is, a real, is a fictionalized version of this real-life thing. But it seems like fiction. But it took on a life of its own, and it's really become like an immortal story. It really has. And one of the ways these 
true crime stories become immortal is through murder ballads. And you have to kind of wonder why these murder ballads are such an integral part of folklore and how these legends just come to be so important. You know, some people say it's, it's an element of escapism. We're trying to understand our boundaries and those extremes and it kind of helps us construct that parameter of existence. But I really like this that Richard Thompson says. He says that the function of these songs is to get it out there so that it's been sung about as a real thing that's happened. Society needs to deal with this subject matter. They need to look at these things, and so they look at it in the guise of entertainment, and it makes it easier to deal with. These enduring tales might indulge in a little vicarious violence or social transgression, but they're testament to the eternal human desire to bring these dark subjects into the light and examine them in the hope that somewhere amid all this chaos and confusion, blood, guts, and gore, something will start to make sense. These murder ballads are a way to face our monsters. They're a way to face that internal evil that unfortunately is is and can be a part of anyone. You know, these people don't always have these passion motives. Sometimes this murder comes from within. And we can see how society has developed to almost allow these things to happen. Allow these dichotomies to exist and these transgressions to be normalized. And we have to look and see that the, the themes of these songs, what they're telling us about us i don't know if they're just a story i think they're probably a little bit more than just a story society 13 podcast network redefining podcasts society-13.com i like to listen Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.